This is the MG Car Club podcast with Wayne Scott and Adam Sloman. On this week's MG Car Club podcast, a tribute to an MG legend, former works team manager Peter Browning. The MG Car Club podcast. Hello and welcome to the MG Car Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you. Hope you keep him well. This week, news that inevitably Le Mans Classic has been cancelled. It's clear that things in Europe regarding the pandemic at least seem to have taken a turn for the worse. So quite rightly, the organisers, faced with having to run the event behind closed doors, have decided that it's best to wait until 2022 to run it. Organiser Peter Otto said that Le Mans Classic without the public, without exhibitors and without the clubs, like the MG Car Club, is just not Le Mans Classic. So we'll have to wait two years now for the next edition of Le Mans Classic and they'll do another edition in 2022 and then a further one in 2023, the year after, rather than every two, because it'll be an opportunity to reinforce, as they say, the tribute to the centenary 100 years of the creation of the 24 Hours of Le Mans race. That's going to be a very memorable year indeed for fans of the 24-hour endurance race that is Le Mans. So, if you have got your tickets to Le Mans, they are rolling them over until 2022, but if you can't make those dates, get in touch with your ticket provider for a full refund. And a teaser there about what to look forward to when the situation improves. We'll keep you updated here on the MG Car Club podcast. Meanwhile, also in Europe, and despite those strengthening pandemic restrictions I mentioned, MG Motor managed to launch a new car this week. And it's marvellous. Well, it's a marvel, actually. Uh, the MG Marvel R is what they're calling it, and it's the latest electric SUV to join the MG lineup for European markets and sits in the range of second generation battery electric vehicles, which of course now also includes the new MG5 estate that we talked about on this podcast at the tail end of last year. And it promises to us, the customers, improved performance, longer driving ranges, which I'm told is nothing to do with golf, and shorter charging times. The exterior, although identical in size and footprint to the previous model, poses by rocking MG's new evolution design language, as they call it, which sees a more consistent design language starting to emerge across all MG motor models worldwide. And they've been criticised for this in the past that, well, most of their models look totally different from one another. There doesn't seem to be much brand identity, as marketing departments would call it. So we're good to see that coming through strong in the new lineup. The MG Marvel R is going to be available in all-wheel drive with a triple electric motor setup with one motor on the front axle with two at the rear, or the option of just rear-wheel drive with dual electric motors, and power figures stand at the equivalent of what would be 288 brake horsepower, which gives it phenomenal speed. It's 0 to 60 in just 4.9 seconds. I mean, that's Aston Martin territory, basically, and a top speed of 125 miles per hour, which, of course, is limited so that uh, you don't use all your battery up when you're flying down the autobahn in germany and that's for all-wheel drive models so they reckon it will travel over 248 miles on a single charge though they've not released information on the battery size as yet 
and MG's onboard 11 kilowatt AC charger is the standard model. That's the same thing that you'd see in the ZSEV, for example, and the MG5. And the DC fast charging will top up 80% of the battery in just half an hour, which for electric cars at the moment isn't bad, actually. The Marvel R will also offer vehicle to load charging. Now, this is a nifty device where basically if you've got like an electric bike or even some electric tools, in fact, things like lawnmowers and whatever, you can actually charge them off the car. So that's quite a nice nifty feature tech-wise. Alongside inside, they've got a 19.4-inch touchscreen here and a 12.3 digital instrument panel, all part of the tech package that comes with the new line of MGs. So a quick measure puts the MG Marvel R at pretty much the same size as the previous MG Marvel model, just with those design changes that I mentioned. So another new model, another weapon in the armory of MG as they bid to take over the world before the centenary of the brand just a couple of years from now. For more MG Motor news, by the way, you can check out the latest on the MG Car Club website via the news pages at mgcc.co.uk. Next, though, I'm joined by Graham Robson with our tribute to Peter Browning. The MG Car Club Podcast. The MG Car Club, the mark of friendship. To take advantage of our many membership benefits, access to our centres and registers, and to receive your copy of Safety Fast magazine, join us now at mgcc.go.uk. Sharing your passion for MG on the MG Car Club podcast. Well, on this week's MG Car Club podcast, it is just fitting that we mark the passing of a legend around these parts, actually, Peter Browning. Uh, Peter Browning passed away last Sunday, the 14th of March, aged 84. And someone who knew him well and interviewed him on many occasions is Graham Robson. And uh, Graham returns to the MG Car Club podcast. Hi, Graham. Hi, Wayne. Yes, what a sad weekend it was for us because uh, Peter was a great guy. Uh, I mean, my dear friend Stuart Turner said uh, in passing, one of the good guys. And you know what I mean by that, that no one really had a bad word to say about Peter. He was badly let down by what British Leyland did to him and to the uh, competitions department at MG in 1970. And I think you're probably going to make that very clear. Absolutely. Well, it all started early on in Peter's life, really, because you and I have interviewed him many times, and especially around uh, the 1968 London-Sydney Marathon. But his motorsport career really stemmed out of the interest passed on to him by his father, didn't it? And uh, his dad had a bit of a strange job in that he was one of the country's most acclaimed organists and organ tuners, and that's where he made the money to go racing. And, uh, and he started at the very start of motorsport, racing ammo cars and, and MGs at Brooklands, and that seems to be where the interest for Peter had come from. So it was certainly built in into the blood for Peter because Peter said that he was also very interested in playing uh, keyboards and things, uh, classical keyboards, if you like, uh, while he was young. And he sort of, he, he came into motorsport through his father. Basically, he started, as I recall, uh, he started by specialising on being a timekeeper and a lap scorer, and he got into management that way. Yeah, of course, in the days where you had to employ people to go along to the races with your team 
to keep score of everything that the team was doing throughout the race with the old printed charts and stopwatch, didn't you? Nothing more complicated than pieces of paper, graph paper, hopefully pens that, or pencils that didn't run out during the race, and you kept your eyes open the whole time. I did quite a bit of it myself, but by no means as, as professionally or often as Peter did. Well, in 1956, he became top fact for you here he became the youngest person to qualify as a grade one international timekeeper <laughs> so almost everything i've said thank goodness is correct yes yeah and that's where i got to know of him at all and it's when if you like everyone who got to know him respected him they used to come away saying my goodness this man knows what he's doing and he enjoyed it well if you look into the history books of the veteran car club of great britain you'll find his family name there his dad bill was the uh, one of the founder members and the vice president of the veteran car club of great britain and that really as uh, graham's just said uh, really got peter into motorsport and started an accomplished career so graham how did it turn out that he ended up at british leyland because like you there's a bit of a similarity here you both sort of started at local motor clubs and motor clubs associated with universities and colleges didn't you yes and let's talk about peter rather than me but uh, peter basically because of his skills as a timekeeper here there and everywhere and if you like a budding team manager he was he was became well known particularly among the mg fraternity and it wasn't um, until maybe the early 60s that he started doing regular jobs for MG, for competitions, when Stuart Turner was there, to do the sort of racing side of things that Stuart couldn't be bothered with and Bill Price didn't do. So he, he came into the uh, BMC, MG competition side of things from his expertise and from his what was in fact still his hobby at the time. I'm always amazed when you look back at so many people in motorsport history, how they seemingly instantaneously go from things like as peter did the harrow car club and the eight clubs race meetings at silverstone through to being approached by a major manufacturer and and as you say names like stuart turner and jeff healy they just approached him and said come and work for us but that was the sort of thing that happened in those days wasn't it quite so and and by the mid 60s uh, peter was very much one of the important characters on the racing side of things like, I don't know, MGB's going to race at Le Mans or going to Sebring or or, thing, or Austin Healy's going to do the Targa Florio. If, if ever there had to be some sort of successful, serious, professional racing organisation within the works team at Abingdon, Peter was the go-to guy that they went to. Well, John Thornley himself went to Peter in 1961 and asked him to set up a car club. And, of course, the MG Car Club had already been long established by then, uh, but there wasn't one for Austin Healy's, and it was Peter who was tasked with setting this up, wasn't it? And so Peter, therefore, if you like, compartmentalised his timing skills and everything into one box and then opened another box, and he became, a, 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 as you've just said, he became a sort of originator, organiser, editor developer of things like the austin healy club and he, he also became very important to the uh, to the mg car club as well and correspondent on safety fast magazine which of course is our magazine to this day he was competitions press officer for the mag wasn't he and i remember at one time a little later in his career after he'd left bmc he he became autogar's 
rallying correspondent and he had a very abrupt way of signing uh, there weren't emails in those days there were telegrams and things and i remember because i used to be going to autogar a lot in those days he was always known as regards browning <laughs> <laughs> but a lovely man and yes so he was then by then he became as you obviously knew he became the man in motorsport who could do anything and do it well well when Stuart Turner left uh, that was when John Thornley sort of turned to Peter Browning and really gave him the top job at BMC that was the moment it all changed for him wasn't it and I think indeed and I think from what Peter told me once that he had about 30 minutes notice of this it wasn't it wasn't a well weeks weeks ahead we're going to call you in and interview you maybe Stuart one day knowing Stuart it's very likely true knowing Stuart one day he said right I'm retiring I'm going to another job soon by the way I want you as my new man Peter has often said his first job was one that Stuart gave him which was about a week before the Monte Carlo rally he gave him a, a sheaf of planning papers and a list of who was taking what cars where, and said, right, organise the tyre plan for me, would you? I love the fact that, having made the decision to leave, Stuart Turner then sort of said to Peter, well, I tell you what, I'll show you the ropes, we'll go and do the Monty in a mini, and they only went and won the thing, didn't they? Good start. Peter's always said that he was spoilt, because Stuart Turner moved on to other things. Bless him, he's still around, and I talk to him often. Stuart went on to do other things. Peter was immediately dropped into this huge job and uh, as i recall and uh, it's it wasn't mg's finest year it was a good year for mg but it was the finest year for the bmc minis i think they won something like six european championship events that year and peter never stopped talking about it he was wandering around with his eyes wide open saying what have i come to do isn't it lovely and he got the i got the impression that he decided he could always do this and i think if he hadn't had how shall we put it Less than total encouragement from the senior people, i.e., sorry guys, British Sailand, I think he would have continued doing that. Amazing to think that right where Kimber House is to this day on Cemetery Road, just over the way there where there are now new flats, of course, that was where legends really like Peter Browning were working on not just MGs but minis as well, and they all came out of that little Abingdon plant. It is amazing, isn't it? Well, that's right, and uh, of course it was down to Peter that they almost so nearly won the World Cup Rally of 1970. Again, sorry, I can't say it was an MG. Uh, they didn't, didn't enter MGs. They entered big triumphs, but they so nearly won the event. And I think the thing that annoyed Peter, who actually walked away from his job in the summer after that event, was that for some reason uh, the team had finished second and fourth in the world's biggest and most important rally, and as far as his bosses are concerned at British Leyland, this was a failure. Talk about short-sighted. Mm. They never really got motorsport as it went into the BL era, did they? Well, that's quite so. Peter, of course, it was by then, it was well and truly in his blood, and he had other things to do in the next 30 years. Well, I knew Peter from the sessions that you and I have done together, uh, commemorating the London-Sydney Marathon Rally and the london to mexico world cup rally of uh, two years after that uh, and he was very much still involved in piecing together the history behind that and he used to come to the events and and talk openly about his memories of it but uh, how was his involvement in for those who don't know the story in those two momentous occasions well in in 1968 and 1970 the first two marathons he was already competitions manager of bmc at abingdon and again, to uh, remind people who 
don't read their history books as often as I do. Uh, in 1968, London, Sydney, I think uh, the uh, big uh, barges, the 1800s, finished second and third or something like it. And in 1970, the big triumphs, uh, again, with a lot of MG um, expertise going into them, finished second and fourth in the, in the World Cup rally. Peter was there as the team manager, completely unflappable. I mean, I, I went to see him once or twice, and although his, his office desk, like mine, as I look at it now, would be full of papers and everything, he never seemed to flap. He knew what was going on, and uh, it was just very organized. And I think the story I have to tell at this point is 1970, the, the event went all around South America, and I'm delighted to say I was on the event. Um, we kept on seeing BMC mechanics and we kept on seeing Peter and we kept on seeing the cars and everything all the way around and they never seemed to be short of parts and we said well how can this be and it's really Bill Price who came up with the lovely phrase which lived with him forever oh he said we're using Browning's bomber they decided they had so many spares to move around the continent including wheels and engines and everything that they needed something heavy to take them so they they hired a Bristol Britannia. They hired a Bristol Britannia freighter, wow. and that became known among those of us there as Browning's Bomber. <laughs> and that's how unflappable it was. I mean, think nowadays it would be someone would have legislation say you couldn't do it. But how many other people in the world are rallying, except maybe Stuart, who told him everything any, anyway, how many other people would have thought of hiring a four-engine turboprop airliner to take spares around? So when Peter, when Peter had... Um, shall we say, walked away from British Leyland before it finally gave him a heart attack. He went and did lots of other things, and I, I run out of trying to remember what other things he did. But he was, of course, in the 70s, he was executive director of the BRSCC, mm. which is one of the biggest motor sport clubs in the country. Much, must love to be there. And after that, he, he did other things like running, running a press office for Marlborough, and uh, he was also a very important... Wasn't he um, competition's director or something of the MG Car Club at one point in the 80s? Mm. And, of course, a good indication of the esteem he was held in motorsport circles was that he was also made an associate member of the BRDC as well. And that just sort of shows how much respect drivers and, and other teams had for him and the way he managed the BL competitions department, doesn't it? And, and you, you uh, would understand me as an old man getting very frustrated with Peter when I interviewed him often because he was so modest, so modest. It was difficult to get him to come clean. It was difficult for him to take the credit for things that he'd done. Mm. And uh, I must say towards the end of his life and uh, until fairly recently, whenever I tried to get Peter to come along and, and be a chat show guest or to be a, a personality at an event, I would always say, I'm too busy at home and, uh, and I'm not important and people won't remember. He was wrong, but he was also modest. Yeah. Well, one of the great historical guys, really, of motorsport, that, and it's right that we mark him on the MG Car Club podcast. I do hope, Wayne, the MG Car Club itself thinks as much of Peter as he did of them and as I think most of us did of him at the time.
Absolutely. Well, of course, Bill Price has written a fantastic tribute to him in Safety Fast magazine. You can read that if you're a member of the MG Car Club. And if you're not a member, why not? You can join very easily via mgcc.co.uk. But just for a minute, let's not talk about MGs, but let's talk about Austin Healy's. And in particular, an Austin Healy 3000 and one with a private number plate on. And this is, I think, you say he was modest, of course, but he did allow himself a few luxuries in life. And one of them was a private number plated Austin Healey with the plate PWB57. Now, PWB being his initials, of course. Yeah, and allegedly oh. this was the best Healey ever prepared at Abingdon. Is that a myth or do you think it's true? <laughs> No, it's it's true, and of course, being Peter, he wouldn't tell the whole story. He was too modest about it. But basically, and I was around at the time, he had already become competitions manager in 1967. The big Healy had been retired from motorsport because he had run out of regulations, if you know what I mean. Uh, but there came the RAC rally of 1967. There was going to be a prototype category, and Rano Altman came along, a team driver. Rano Altman came along to Peter and said, "I want to take a Healy on the RAC rally." And Peter said, well, we don't have any anymore. But he said, I've bought, I bought one. I've got one of the X-Works cars myself. And the deal was done that the, he would sell the car back to the competitions department. They would prepare it to be the ultimate 3000, which, my goodness, it was. And Rano would drive it on the RAC rally and hopefully win. Then that was the event that was cancelled the night before the start because of the foot and mouth disease at the time. The car never turned a wheel in action, but it was it had an alloy uh, an alloy engine of the type used in the MGC Sebring cars. It had um, everything that you could ever hope to see in a Healy, and um, it would have been a winner. And of course, there was nothing there. So Peter said, "I'll write back if you like," and he did. <laughs> he kept it for a while. It, now, of course, it went. It was the ultimate car, no question. And it then went on to be owned by uh, enthusiasts in the uh, Austin Healy movement. And it, it is somewhere out there and we see it occasionally in public. Well, one of the great stories of British motorsport. And thank you, Graham Robson, for coming on to the MG Car Club podcast to mark the passing of Peter Browning, who passed away Sunday, the 14th of March, 2021, at the age of 84, survived by Nicola and Oliver, his uh, children from his first marriage. Graham, thank you for coming on and sharing your memories of Peter. And of course, as I say, you can read the full tribute in Safety Fast magazine, the magazine of the MG Car Club. Thank you very much for that, uh, Wayne. It was a real privilege to talk about Peter, who was a good friend of mine, who I knew for many years, and uh, I just wish he was around still. Subscribe to receive new episodes of the MG Car Club podcast at mgpodcast.uk.